Let's Fix Work is brought to you by WorkHuman, the HR event you don't want to miss. Visit WorkHuman.com and learn more today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Not everybody knows that I'm the daughter of a police officer. My mom, and yeah, it's my mom, is retired from the Chicago Police Department, and she's got a great benefit plan and a pension package, and that's because of smart union negotiations. And while nothing is ever guaranteed in this world, the union has done right by my family. Today's guest is Jason Greer, a labor relations expert and the founder of GCI Consulting. Jason is a Gen Xer, just like me. He comes from a working class background, just like me, but he's got a slightly different take on unions. He believes in protecting the working class, which is awesome, and he believes there are strength in numbers, but he just feels that a union is the wrong way to go about protecting your interests. Jason and I both agree that we fix work by fixing ourselves. So if you're interested in the state of unions in 2019, or you want to hear from an African-American man who talks about civil rights and busting unions from a slightly different perspective, sit tight and I'll be right back with Jason Greer and more Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. And so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Jason. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Lori, how are you? Oh, my goodness. I am great. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. It's, I'm excited about talking to you and just exploring this issue. Well, before we get started, Jason, you are coming at us live and sort of in person in St. Louis, Missouri. Can you tell everybody where you are and what your surroundings are like today? So I am in the beautiful Shack City Studios here in St. Louis, Missouri, one of the best setups I've ever seen coming to you live. Oh, God, it's so crazy. And I'm sitting here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we are kind of jerry-rigging this conversation because we recorded it once before, and it wasn't to my standards, my audio specifications. And I really want people to know who you are and what you do. And when I think about you, Jason, you're a union guy, but not in the way people would think. So what's your quick and dirty story about who you are and what you do? My quick and dirty story is I am what they call a labor relations consultant. I'm the president of Greer Consulting, Inc., and we are in the top 5% in the country in terms of providing union avoidance services to companies who are seeking to remain union-free. Union avoidance. That's a real tricky, serious, controversial topic. So as we get started, why do companies fight unions? Why don't they want unions? So from a company standpoint, it sort of looks like this. Companies want the autonomy and the right to essentially work with their employees without the need for a third party, or as they call it, a third party intervener, which is a union. Generally speaking, when you bring a labor union into play, you're talking about a multitude of things. You're talking about costs associated with negotiations. You're talking about a collective bargaining agreement, which in layman terms is basically a contract. What employers want more than anything else is the ability to work one-on-one with employees without the need for a third party. Yeah, yeah. All right. That makes sense to me. (laughs) Except that I was taught in the world of human resources that you get the union that you deserve. And so most people have unions and work in environments with unions because management has really screwed up. What do you think about that? Is that accurate? Uh, sort of, sort of. And when we talk about, you know, this is why I think labor relations as a whole is such a tricky subject because we typically look at it, we try to look at it in either shades of black or shades of white, but it's really a shades of gray because it's in the middle. I do agree that, you know, there's this old labor axiom that says people don't want a union. When they vote for a union, they're voting against bad management. 
the reality is that oftentimes companies, when they are unionized, they're completely caught off guard. They're caught off guard because there might be an issue or a series of issues that the employees may have addressed with the employer or may not have addressed with the employer. Then they finally get to the point where they get so sick of dealing with the employer that they go on and get the union. What I tell people, what I tell employees, what I tell management is this. And I always use the example of two partners, two married partners. The wife looks at the husband and is consistently saying, take out the trash, take out the trash. She says, yeah, 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 I'll take out the trash, take out the trash. Six weeks later, she's tired of doing it. So she just throws the whole trash can out. And she says, I'm tired of dealing with you sleep on the couch. He's like, what did I do? Give me a chance, <laughs> right? Give me, yeah. give, give me a chance to do something about this. And it's usually at the point where she's thrown out the trash can or in the case of the employees and management where the employees have gone out and gotten a union, that the employer realizes how serious this issue was. And it's usually the employer that's coming forward saying, I just wish you would have given us a second chance. I am so frustrated to hear this argument because for years, companies have improved their profitability and improved their margins on the back of working men and women across this country. So how many chances do they need to be given? How many opportunities do they need to be given? And if not a union, what should employees have? What's the alternative? You know, that's a great question. It's, you know, it's a tough sell because I was looking at the news, I think maybe about a week ago and everyone's familiar with, especially if you're of, you know, I'm 44 years old. Some of that generation of, you know, Sears, Ventures, Kmart's, all that stuff. And you look at the fact that Sears has filed for bankruptcy, but they've cut the severance payment for employees while a judge is allowing Sears to pay off executives, I think to the tune of about $25 million in bonuses just to make sure that they stick around for the next six months. Yeah, it's so frustrating, especially with what's happening in the world of retail, right? So It's so frustrating. It's not like a union would necessarily protect people from that, but I think a union is what executives have. Executives have corporate recruiters. They have systems. They have institutions to protect them. So, all right, so employees don't have unions. What What could they be doing in order to make sure that they're not in an employment situation where their severance has been cut and executives are still, you know, eating from the fat buffet that they're eating from? You know, I'm going to tell you one of the things that I generally tell employees, because that's the question that employees always ask. If we don't go the route of the union, what should we do? Because we've met with HR, we told HR what our issues are, nothing's been addressed. We oh, talked yeah, to that goes without saying. Yeah. Right. We've we've talked <laughs> right. we've talked to our middle managers, nothing's been done. The CEO has even come in and she's promised us that all these things are going to be changed and nothing's changed. So what solution do you have to offer us? And what I generally tell employees is this by the time someone like me gets involved, where an employer has made the decision to bring in a labor relations consultant or my entire team, they're serious. Because if they're going to spend money on me, that means they're going to spend money on you. That means that they're going to take the time to properly address the issues that are affecting the employees. You know, you'll have employees who'll say things like, we want to raise. Okay, how much more do you want? If we got five bucks more an hour, things would be great. So the employer gets five bucks more an hour, but they don't address some of those intangibles that are really plaguing the employees. So you have these employees who are walking around making more money than they had before, but they're still miserable. What I tell employees is this. You have what we call social capital. Social capital looks like this. You know the employer does not want you to join a union. The employer wants the ability to work with you side by side. Now you hold the employer accountable. I mean, one of the things that you and I talked about was, I think it was last year, where uh, Starbucks, you had two African-American gentlemen who were sitting in uh, Starbucks in Philadelphia. 
I think there were two real estate developers, two young guys sitting there minding their own business. They're waiting for a third party to join, you know, for someone else to join because they were going to have a meeting. The manager of Starbucks calls the police because he said that these two African-American gentlemen were loitering and because they hadn't ordered anything. Now, what's interesting about this is that the people sitting around them who happened to be white all said, we didn't order anything. We're sitting here working on our laptops or playing on our cell phones, just like these gentlemen. But nevertheless, the police were called in. These two men were handcuffed and taken away. People today have cell phones and they shared the video of what happened to those two gentlemen and they shared it to the point where Starbucks actually closed all their stores, I think last May or something of that nature, and held mandatory diversity training because they took power. They took the power away from corporate. So it wasn't enough for Starbucks to say we're an organization that doesn't discriminate. What people said was, prove it to us. Prove it to us that you are actually about the business. And that's what they did. What I tell employees is you have the power to take a stand against your employer. You just have to be smart about it. You know, Jason, I believe in you and I believe your message around social capital. And I believe that in today's economy, people do have the power to change the narrative, to express themselves differently and to draw attention to issues that are really important to them. I just think it's such a sad commentary in our society that it has to come to that. It has to come to a cell phone. It has to come to public shaming in order to move corporations from a place of, I don't know, malfeasance or total disregard to being decent human beings and being decent leaders. So when you work with an organization, I know you're working with them at a very tense time where there's probably a lot of, you know, uh, tension, there's a lot of mistrust. How do you bridge the divide? Like, how do you recover a relationship that's so broken and so fractured? Honesty and empathy. And I know, (laughs) you know, some of the people in the labor relations world will laugh at me when I make that statement that honesty and empathy are actually what will bridge the gap between employers and management because people generally want to look at this from a combative sense. But what I do in terms of my consulting is why we've been so impactful is we believe in the deep dive and the deep dive says this. Give me your employees. Put me in a room with your employees. I don't care how many employees you have. I don't care if you have five employees all the way to 5,000 employees. My focus group is all your employees. And I'm going to sit there with them. I have a background in counseling. I have a bachelor's degree in social work and a master's degree in social work from Washington University in St. Louis. And I will sit there with your employees and we're going to diagnose what's going on. I want to hear the nitty gritty. I want to hear the things that you think about when you're driving to work, the things you think about when you're at work, and the things that you think about after you leave work. And then I want to meet with your management team. I want to hear what they have to say. When we have people who are being open, honest, authentic, that's when we can start to put things in perspective because it's not until we get all these things out on the table that we're actually able to move forward. Because what generally happens, and you know, God bless CEOs, God bless people in the executive wings, but unfortunately, you spend so much time dealing with the process of running a business that you forget about the people who actually make up your bottom line, which are your employees. So you can come up with the best laid plans in the corporate suite. But if you're not actually with your employees, walking the floor with your employees, hearing what they have to say, and more importantly, if you're going to make a change from an organizational standpoint, understanding how that change is going to impact those people, you're going to fail. So what we do from a consulting standpoint is we come in and we bridge that gap by getting all of the stakeholders. And I'm talking all the way from the C-wing all the way down to the janitorial wing, all of those people together on one page and moving forward. It's not easy, but we get it done. Well, that's a really beautiful sentiment. And in the next half of the show, we're going to talk a little bit more about the 
idea that there is strength in numbers, whether you're protected by a union or not. Right. And we're also going to ask the question, how is it possible to bust a union? People want to know that answer. So Jason, sit tight <laughs> and everybody else, sit tight. We'll be right back right after the break with more Let's Fix Work. Hey everybody, Lori Rudiman here. I'm excited to be back at Work Human this year with keynote speakers like Brene Brown and Gary Hamill. Work Human brings together visionaries, thought leaders, and industry experts to share the latest research and ideas about the most compelling workplace issues. Do you work in HR? Are you a leader of teams? Do you wonder how to align your executive strategy with your people strategy? Well, join me at Work Human March 18th through 21st in Nashville, Tennessee. Visit WorkHuman.com and use code WorkHumanLFW for a $100 discount. That's WorkHuman.com and use code WorkHumanLFW for a $100 discount. And remember, head on over to WorkHuman.com and use that code WorkHumanLFW for a $100 discount today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Lori Rudiman and Let's Fix Work. And my guest today is Jason Greer. Jason, how you doing? Oh, doing awesome, Lori. How about you? Oh man, I'm really enjoying this conversation. And listen, one of the things that I want to talk about that's so very important to me is unions and the civil rights movement, because in my mind, they go hand in hand. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how the two are connected and whether or not unions have been good for protected minorities here in America. Absolutely. I'll say that I have a different take on this. So Unions have been very impactful in terms of civil rights in many ways. I mean, when you consider that prior to, let's say, the 70s, if you as a woman or myself as an African-American man, if we were discriminated against in the workplace, we had no one to turn to. There were no federal labor laws protecting us because we were not considered members of a protected class. So we had to turn to labor unions. And generally speaking, labor unions, in theory, were there to fight for us. The challenge with unions from a historical standpoint is that unions in many cases were considered to be as discriminatory against women and ethnic minorities as corporations were. Mm-hmm. So Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Is that true? Yeah, it's very true. In fact, when you look at the history of the Pullman Porters, Pullman Porters had to fight hard just to be recognized in a way, not only recognized through the National Labor Relations Board, but also being recognized by other labor unions such as the Teamsters. And I bring up the Teamsters because they're one of the most widely known unions across the country. Even to this day, the Teamsters have class action lawsuits that have been filed against them by African-American members who've said that they've been discriminated against in terms of their grievances not being filed properly, in terms of their rights not being properly mediated. So it's sort of a mixed bag when we look at it from a civil rights standpoint in terms of actuality. But I think from a theoretical standpoint, unions make sense. I mean, you talked about it before we went to break, that there's a beauty of there being strength in numbers. It's just a matter of making sure that those numbers are actually fighting for the people who are in need. Yeah, I hear you on this. And it does not shock me that there's institutional racism within unions. Like there's institutional racism in everything, institutional sexism in every system that we have here in America. And, you know, we have a leader of our country right now who, you know, allegedly when he was in the business world, used the N-word and he's not necessarily the bastion of leadership that many of us want right now. So even from the top down, our country is still fighting this issue of racism. But I still don't understand the answer to the question, if not a union, then what? What 
is the right system for African-American workers? What's the right system for women? Is it guilds? Is it cooperatives? Like what's what's the answer to having some strength in numbers? Is it just, you know, open and honest communication with your peers? What do you think? You know, I think an aspect of it is corporate America has been a wonderful thing for our country. I'm in business because there's such a thing as corporate America, right? <laughs> let's, let's just put yeah. it on the table. Right. I mean, I'm, I yeah. get, I get it. And I want to say I'm a capitalist uh, too, right? I mean, we should make money, but isn't there a better way to include workers? I think is where I'm yeah, going I think, with this. I don't know if there's a better way, but I think there's a different way. I think one thing that, and I think I mentioned this to you before, that I know a gentleman who, I mean, we consider the fact that manufacturing, manufacturing 50 years ago was the bastion of our economy. It's what kept us going. Today, manufacturing jobs are giving way to robots, is giving way to offshoring. Those jobs that people of my father's generation and my mother's generation held on to dearly are no longer there. So there's a gentleman that I know who realized that he's probably got another good 40 years on this earth. And he said, if I have another 40 years on this earth, I still need to be able to make money, but there are no jobs out there to support what I do. So through research, I mean, he did not go to college. He just went to a library, just talked to people and discovered through research that manufacturing companies are going to need X number of skill sets and X number of widgets. And that's what he started to specialize in and created a business out of his garage. Now he's a multimillionaire. What I urge people to do is to figure out what do you want to do within this economy? What is the need for the economy and how do you fit that need? Because if we continue to sit back hoping that corporate America is going to provide jobs or better yet, that corporate America is going to do in general, is always going to do right by the people. There are going to be some people who get hurt by that because the mission and value statement of many corporations will specify that we care about people, we care about our employees, we care about the environment. Those things sound nice, but not all corporations really care about that. But the one thing that corporations by and large are going to care about are profit. If they care about profit, and you are somebody who obviously needs to have your mortgage paid, your house, you know, your light bill paid, your car bill paid. If you can't get a job working for corporate America, then figure out a way that you can supply corporate America. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. And that's a new take on the American dream. It's about rethinking your skill set and what you have to offer and reinventing yourself. And I, I don't think that's bad advice. I don't know how realistic it is for everybody in our economy. I don't know how realistic it is for coal miners in right. West Virginia. I don't know how realistic it is for, you know, people who work in the automotive industry in some of these towns in Ohio where the plants are going to start to close. I mean, it's it's all well and good to say, retrain yourself and pull yourself up from your bootstraps. But if your bootstraps are already six feet under the ground, <laughs> you know, you're going to have a long way to go before you even reach a level playing field with everybody else where you can compete. So, you know, I don't expect you to have all the answers to fixing capitalism and fixing competitiveness. But I want to know what your experience is like as a labor relations consultant, as an African-American man, because I would expect that you probably take a lot of flack for some of the positions that you have out in public. Uh, That's an understatement. (laughs) That's that's, that's an understatement. And one of the reasons why I so enjoy talking to you is that you're asking me questions. You ask me the tough questions from multiple perspectives. Oftentimes when I do podcasts and we're talking about labor relations, I'm brought in by ultra-conservative thinkers. Yeah. who want to sit back and just bash on unions, who want to sit back and bash on ethnic minorities. And they figure because I'm an African-American who happens to be on this side of the fence, that that's how I think and I don't. The reality is, you know, when I walk into the corporate boardroom and please understand that I will get hired and that my company will get hired without them ever having seen me. They just know my reputation. So I'll walk into the room and I actually had the CEO ask me, okay, where's Jason Greer? I'm like, um, I'm Jason Greer. 
And for the record, I seriously doubt you're ever going to forget me. I'm 6'3", 270 pounds, right? You can't, you can't you, you're not, and I'm pigeon toed, right? So you're never, you know, so you're never going to forget me. But right. uh, I think that what we get from employees and it's an honest feeling of why aren't you out here fighting for us? Why are you fighting for quote unquote the man? Why are you fighting for the corporation? Why are you fighting for the corporation to keep the union out? And my perspective is this. I'm a former board agent with the National Labor Relations Board. So that means that, you know, I was the intermediary between the union and the company. And what I would see over and over again are these employees who would get so hyped up and just get so excited by everything that the union was going to do for them. They're going to make more money. They're going to get better benefits. They're going to get bonuses, all these things. And then two years later, they're coming back into my office asking, how do we get rid of the union? Because they sold us a bill of goods. Hmm. Because what no one tells the employees is under the National Labor Relations Act, and to me, the National Labor Relations Act is the most beautiful law God ever created. The National Labor Relations Act is beautiful, but it's not perfect. There's nothing in the act that says that you, the union, have the ability and the power to tell a company that they have to give pay raises. There's nothing in the act that says you, as the union, have the ability to force the company to expand their operations and to expand their job search. When you join a union, the only thing you give the union the right to do is to ask on your behalf. And the problem is you have to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And don't you pay for it with more than just money? I mean, there is a certain benefit you get from, you know, having union neighbors who take care of you, especially if you go on on strike. But there's also like an emotional cost to the union, right? Don't you have some horror stories about what a union does and doesn't do if you don't play along? Yeah. I mean, one of the stories that I tell people is I've seen situations where Service Employees International Union, SEIU, one of the largest unions on the face of this planet, and they organize probably better than anybody else I've ever seen. They're very good about coming in, making you feel like you belong, like you're part of a bigger movement. I think they call them the purple people eater. And the problem is when you try to get out, it's almost like trying to get out of the mafia. <laughs> you don't get out of the mafia. <laughs> Right. It's the moment I find out, let's say, Lori, you are a rank and file member and you're working for a hospital and you've been paying your union dues for five years and you continue to see the hospital reduce its staff, change your job duties, change the obligations. And you continue to go to your union shop store. You continue to go to the business agents and you continue to ask them to stop these things. And they continue to tell you they don't have any power to do that. And you say, well, why do I have to continue paying two and a half times my hourly wage to a union and the former union dues? I might as well get rid of these jabronis. <laughs> okay. So the moment that they find out that you are the person who is targeting them for what we call decertification, now they have the ability to target you. They can file charges against you. They can take you to what we call the kangaroo court, which is the union court where you actually get up in front of a mediator and you have to state your case because the union is now against you. Huh. They have the ability to essentially embarrass you in front of your union members. All the while, they're still expecting that you're going to pay your union dues in order to remain a member in good standing. All right. So that's no good. And again, systems are in place to benefit the system and not right. the people. I hear that. If I work in human resources or I'm a leader and someone comes to me and says, I'm unhappy with the union. You know, my husband asked me, how do you bust a union? How do you decertify the <laughs> union? I'm like, you know what? I have no idea. I'll ask that question. What do you do when your workers are unhappy? What can you do? What's legal? What's illegal? Like what's the next step? So if you have a union, a certified union under the National Labor Relations Board, 
The employees have the right to do what we call a decertification campaign, where there's a window of about 90 to 120 days before the end of a collective bargaining agreement, which is a contract, by which a decertification petition can be filed with the NLRB. The issue for the employees is if, Laurie, let's say that you're the human resources manager, and let's say that John Smith comes to you and says, I want to decertify the union. You cannot get involved. You have the right to tell John, well, John, there are a number of resources at NLRB.gov, shameless plug for the National Labor Relations Board, (laughs) right? right? Where you can find out information about decertification, but here's what it really looks like. John will have to go out to his fellow employees and he will have to get signatures from at least 30%, 30% of the bare minimum of those employees to sign a petition saying that they want to decertify the union. Generally speaking, John's going to want to get about 60 to 70% of those employees before he actually files a decertification petition with the National Labor Relations Board. Once he has that, he files that petition. Now we're going to a secret ballot election and the employees are going to determine whether or not they want to remain part of the union. Here's what's going to happen to John though. And I've seen this time and time again, and we've run a number of decertification campaigns. The union now, the union that loved John five years ago, yeah. now all of a sudden is focusing all their attention on John and they are digging up John's personal history. We've seen, we've actually seen them steal cell phones, computers, all the groundwork in terms of hiring private detectives to find out all the dirt on John because now they want to do the smear campaign on John because he's yeah. essentially the emotional heart of that campaign. Um, what we well, do as consultants. That is, that is incredibly depressing. And again, the system. It's terrible wants to benefit itself. So what do you do? I mean, you're theoretically out there trying to create a space where employers and workers can have a conversation, but the employer can't get involved and can't protect the worker right now, right? I mean, that's that's not part of the process. So what role do you play? Yeah, once that petition is actually filed with the NLRB, that's when the management team can actually get involved. That's oh, when the consultants right. can come in. And here's what I tell everyone, and my wife laughs at me when I say this, but I am paid to take the arrows and the bullets for whoever it is they're targeting, right? Oh, all right. If, again, under the this circumstance of John running a decertification campaign, in so many words, I'll tell the union, stop picking on John, come at me. Well, yeah, and you're six foot three. So, you know, you've got a little strength there, right? So you stand in front of John and do you become his intermediary? I mean, how does that work? Great question. So what we do is... John is still in the role of the petitioner. We come in and we begin to meet with the employees and we educate the employees about everything as it relates to labor relations, everything as it relates to why this petition was filed, and more importantly, what the company wants to do to work with you. Now, we have to be mindful too at the same time that the company can't make you any promises or guarantees because that's a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. It's what we call an unfair labor practice charge. But the unfair side of this, though, is that under the National Labor Relations Act, the union can make any promise that they want to because the National Labor Relations Board says that's nothing more than mere pre-election propaganda. But the beauty of what we do as consultants is that when we come in, we not only give them the law, we give them a comparison. Here's what the union said they were going to do. Here's what they did. But here's what they didn't do as well. Understand this. If the company is bringing us in to wage this decertification campaign on your behalf, the company wants to play ball with you. Mm. And if you don't like what the company does for you, you bring back another union in the next year and we're not coming back 
because the company deserves what they, the at, at the at that point the company deserves it. How am I going to come yeah. back to you and say, "Hey, look, I know we asked you for a second chance, but give us a third chance. <laughs> this time it's going to work. It, it doesn't work like me, that." You remind me of that husband who won't listen to his wife about taking out the garbage, right? I mean, that's most exactly. employers in America. Well, you know, the process is really interesting. It's also really depressing, and it makes me feel like there are no winners when a union is involved. And so maybe the point is for both leaders who are listening and employees who are listening as well that you've got to start this conversation early about what you want, what your expectations are, and the economy is good enough right now that maybe you don't need a union or an intermediary. You just need to have a voice and you need to be brave and have that conversation. I don't know. What do you think about that? No, I agree with you. Um, One of the things that we say to my clients as well as prospective clients is there is a strength in being proactive. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've had people reach out to me and say, look, I don't think that we have any union issues, but we might. So can we hire you to come in and do a deep dive? And they're right. There are times where we find out that they don't have union issues per se, but they have employee relations issues. What I will tell people is being targeted by a union or having a union organized is not the worst thing to happen to you. The worst thing that can happen to you is if you don't stop and listen and pay attention to what your employees are saying. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. Because I can't tell you the number of times where actually a company being targeted by a union was a blessing in disguise because they didn't realize that they had middle managers who were snowballing the executives because they were trying to maintain their jobs. So they weren't passing important pieces of information onto the top level executives. Can't tell you the number of times where we had employees who were just like, look, I know you care about us, meaning the company. I know you want the best for us. We also come from the generation where you don't say anything because the moment you say something, you get fired. So we went out, we got a union because we were scared to open our mouths. I look at my role as less of a union buster. I mean, that just, it sounds cool. So that's why I say it, hey, I'm a union buster. But the reality is I look at my role as more of a, I'm a mediator. I'm a social mediator. And it's my responsibility to not only bring you all together, but I see my role as being very finite. If you get to the point where you have to depend on me year after year after year, I'm going to fire myself because I clearly suck at what I do, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, it's (laughs) my role is to bring you all together and then I go on to the next campaign. Well, I hope so. I hope you're not sitting around busting unions year after year at the same company. That would be incredibly depressing. And, you know, I have to say this conversation was surprisingly interesting and progressive for someone who calls himself a union buster. And so people want to learn more about who you are and what you do and how your services fit within their organization. Jason, where can they find you? Thank you so much for that. So you can go to my website. It's greerconsultinginc.com. And there's a button on the front page where you can actually schedule a free 30-minute consultation with me. I promise you, no strings attached. We can just talk, see if we're a fit, and I can answer any questions that you might have. You can also reach me on Twitter at Labor Diversity. Well, I encourage everyone to follow you on Twitter. I'll have all of that information in the show notes. And Jason, thanks again for appearing live and in person in St. Louis. It was really great to have you on Let's Fix Work. Hey, Lori, you were so much fun. Thank you for this interview. This is great. Yeah, you're welcome. And everybody sit back. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work right after the break. Hey, everybody, 2019 is here. And I know you're thinking about building a better life and a better career. If you've been curious about podcasting, I've got some information that can be helpful for you to connect with employees, build a business, improve your brand, make more money, or connect on a deeper level with potential clients. I want to encourage you to apply for Danny Osmond's podcast supercharger course. Who's Danny Osmond? Oh my God, this guy is a lifesaver. I have been through four podcast producers and Danny is helping me clean up 
kick butt and take names with Let's Fix Work. He's super important to me. I've learned a ton about podcast production, and I can't say enough about how great it's been to work with him and learn from him. If you are ready to give up the struggle and create an amazing podcast in the year ahead, then apply today for Danny's live podcast supercharger program. For six weeks from February through March 2019, he's working deeply with just a handful of students who are determined to start a podcast and finally see the results they know they deserve. To find out more about the Podcast Supercharger course and register, go to the Podcast Supercharger link in the show notes. Applications are being reviewed as they come in and spots will fill on a first-come, first-serve basis. So go create an amazing podcast, join Team Podcaster, and hang out with Danny and learn something new in 2019. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jason Greer. For more information on his consultancy or what it means to be a union avoidance expert, check out the links in the show notes. And don't forget to check out Work Human, the underwriter of today's show. Go to www.workhuman.com and use the code WORKHUMANLFW for a $100 discount. This week's Let's Fix Work was produced by Emerald City Productions and recorded in my home office in Shockwave Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. Danny Osmond is the producer and my coach. Got feedback for the show? Hit me up at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for today's episode and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.